invite you to take your Bible, turn to the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 12. As you're doing that, I'm going to invite Chopper to come join me on the stage. Here, uh, Chopper is going to uh, uh, share God's Word with us this morning. About two years ago, I joined the board of um, our regional group of churches, the Central District of the Baptist General Conference of Canada, and uh, I joined right when they were in the middle of interviewing someone uh, to hire as the new district coach to replace Lauren Meisner, who many of you would have known and uh, who had retired. And so when I joined the board, they, they were um, beginning the process with a guy named Ken Wilson. And I didn't know Ken. And um, all the documentation, the resume, everything looked great. And uh, who is this guy? I remember actually going online to Google Ken Wilson. I tried to figure out where does this guy come from? Like what province? And, and so it came uh, time to interview Ken Wilson and Chopper walked in the room. And I'm like, Chopper's name is Ken Wilson? I had no idea. I've known this guy for years. And uh, he was a pastor, executive pastor at one of our sister churches in Winnipeg, Grant Memorial Church. And so I've only ever heard Ken Wilson referred to as Chopper. And so I was just really overjoyed uh, to see our district bring on uh, Chopper. And I think it's okay if we call you that, Ab if they call absolutely. you that, right? And you can, absolutely. maybe he'll tell you the story of how he got that name. When I heard that he used to be a pilot, I assumed it had something to do with that. But apparently it has nothing to do with having been a pilot. Not a thing. Uh, but he can tell us if he'd like. But uh, <laughs> Chopper is our district coach for our area of churches in Manitoba and northwestern Ontario. And uh, in normal times, he would have been here a lot sooner than two years into his tenure to introduce himself uh, to us, but alas, COVID kind of interrupted uh, church life, and so better late than never. Yep. Two years in, Ken is here to uh, just share with us um, a bit of who he is and the ministry of um, our family of churches, but more importantly than just to bring God's word to us. So yep. welcome, Chopper. Oh, thanks so much. Thank you, Rusty. It is great to be here this morning. And yes, be before we go any further, we have to address this name issue, because I will guarantee you when, I, when Rusty said, Chopper, come up here, Somebody in this room said, boy, that's not what I expected. You know, I, I, I was uh, expecting maybe some tattoos, a few scars, something, you know, that kind of a lifestyle. <laughs> Nothing like that in there. And I, I won't go into great depth on it other than the name came from my mother. She is the one that started calling me that. And I never remember anybody in my family, my mother, my father, anybody calling me anything but that. So, uh, and it kind of stuck going through interesting story. I worked at Grant Memorial for 12 years, and one of my departments was the, the, the property department. And after about 10 years being there, the property manager comes to me and goes, man, I'm trying to clean up the, the security codes for everybody that has a security code to this building. And he goes, I've got everybody accounted for. And he's talking to me. He says, I cannot find Ken Wilson. We don't even know who this guy is. We, we have no idea who he is, but he's walking around with a security code to this building. Can I just cancel him? I'm like, Daryl, you can't be serious, man. I'm like, it's me. He's like, what? How could this be? So anyway, yes, the name sticks hard wherever I go. So, and I'm happy for that. It's much easier to remember than my real name, Ken, uh, which, you know, comes out when I cross the border. That's about the only place. So uh, it's totally fine. You can call me that. My wife, Lisa, and I, we have four daughters, two son-in-laws, a a fiance to a daughter, and two grandchildren. So we are thrilled with that. We are now officially empty nesters in our home, and that's good too. You know, we've, we've enjoyed every phase of life, so we're adjusting to that. 
Uh, we do live in Winnipeg. We've been there about uh, 16 years. And interesting connection with Stonewall. When we first came to Winnipeg, as we were being um, uh, interviewed for a, a position at Grant Memorial, we stayed in the home of Glenn and Carol Miller. And uh, we loved that. I worked alongside Glenn for many years and just love those people, still connected with Carol to this day. So as being closely connected with Glenn, we got a lot of the inside stories about new life in Stonewall, which um, uh, some of you are squirming, but they were all good stories. It was really, really good. And just started with a natural love for this place, even before I ever came here way, way back uh, uh, a few years ago. So great to have that connection in the past. Within the Baptist General Conference, which I serve as the district coach for this area, which goes from Timmins to the Saskatchewan-Manitoba border, we have about 25 churches. And we are very thankful for the role of New Life Stonewall in the Baptist General Conference. We are thankful for your practical engagement, your financial support, but also the people you contribute. We've got Rusty's on our board, serves here. Uh, also, Julie Robinson is on our board. We are very thankful for that. And beyond that practical engagement, we are thankful for the testimony and the life of this church and this community. As you hold up the light of Jesus Christ, making a practical difference as you go throughout life. And being a community that draws on and leans on one another. You've even heard it in the prayer this morning that Rusty offered. As you encourage and support one another as you go through the challenges, the trials, and the excitements of life. So we are very thankful for the role of New Life Church and the presence that you have. Thank you very much for being part of the Baptist General Conference. I get the opportunity to support our pastors across this district and nationally. Nationally, we have about 120 churches in the BGC, and I'm just, this is my immediate responsibility, but I partner with all the other coaches in the other districts as well. Get the chance to come along and support our churches in whatever they happen to be going through. And let's face it, these past couple years, there's been a lot to go through. There have been challenges for our churches, uh, for our, our leadership teams, and we are thankful that we've seen God's faithfulness we've been able to step in and be a help and a support in many of those situations. So that's, that's a role I get. A couple of things that are happening in the BGC New in this month, we're rolling out a new platform to be able to help and support our pastors, to help them connect with one another better, to be a real support, because through these past two years and through some of the societal changes, it's been tough on pastors. Uh, there's been a huge attrition in pastors, and there's real concerns for that. So we're hoping to be a better support to them and to our leadership teams. Also, we're starting some conversations about current issues in our societal changes that might be of benefit to our churches as they figure out how do we maintain the presence of Christ and still stand for the values that we hold and help our people grow in their relationship to Christ, embracing our approach to these issues. So those are conversations that are going on with pastors and leadership teams, and they're starting and probably for the next couple of years, they'll be going on and trying to help equip and support our churches. So that's some of the stuff in my role that I get to be a part in and a part of the people that I get to interact with. So we're really thankful for that and for your presence being a real part of all that going on. With all that being said, we're now going to step into God's Word and start taking a look at this. And it's true, we are a full week into 2023. And I know last week Daniel was saying, you know, this thing, be cautious with resolutions and how they can be kind of tricky and kind of maybe uh, uh, lead us into a wrong direction. I totally get that. 
And I don't want to talk about resolutions, but I do want to talk about as we step into this year with excitement, enthusiasm, or maybe intrepidation, what things can we lean on as here are the basics of what I need to know and do and the way I need to act as a follower of Jesus Christ? What are some things that I can lean on as we go into this year? And often we start to forget the basics of this is what we're called to. This is how we're to live our life. You know, there's a very fitting example that we can find in the realm of sport. And I don't know if there are any sports enthusiasts with us in the room here, uh, but this, this particular sport uh, it is getting some excitement right now because in just a few weeks, there's going to be a game held that will crown the champion for the year. So that's obviously, that's the NFL, or maybe not obviously. Some people may not know that the National Football League is a sports group, and they are getting ready to crown their championship. Is anyone familiar with the NFL in this game? Ever heard of it? There's a few. Okay, good, good. So you'll understand what I'm talking about here. There's a really fitting example of going back to the basics in the NFL, but it goes back a few years back actually before the Super Bowl ever existed, back when it was just a championship game of some teams coming together. It was in the 1961 training camp of the Green Bay Packers. Most people know that's an iconic team even today in the NFL. Well, back in 1961, they had just lost the championship game. And they had said through the whole, it was a heartbreaking loss, they were ahead, and then just, oh, at the last minute, everything fell apart. They, they fell apart, the game just turned, and decidedly, the other team won. It was devastating. And the coach, the head coach of the Green Bay Packers at that time, knew that, okay, I've got, coming back into training camp, I've got a group of really demoralized players that have been sitting there the whole offseason and wondering, well, what can we do? How can we improve to be better? Maybe what can we come up with so that we don't get into the same situation this coming year? We want to be back in that championship game. So their coach, Vince Lombardi, sat down with them. They all came. They assembled in. These are the elite athletes, right? These are the people that just a few months ago had risen to, top, to the top to be number two. But he comes into this room in his training camp with these elite athletes, and he steps up, and to their surprise he holds up a football and declares, this is a football. We are going to spend our entire season, un season understanding the basics of playing with this football. And obviously, these are a group of elite athletes. They're like, seriously? There's no way. Surely we've got to come up with some trick plays or something. No, he was serious. He and his coaching staff were desperately committed to the development of the basics. How do you tackle? How do you catch a ball? How do you run with the ball? How do you throw a ball? Literally, that was the playbook for the Green Bay Packers going into the season. They were relentlessly devoted to the fundamentals of the game, the basics. Well, it worked because that season was a winning season for the Green Bay Packers. And they went on to literally destroy the competition in that championship game that year. So much so that Vince Lombardi went on from that point to be the winningest coach in the NFL's history ever. Never again would he lose a playoff game that he was in. To this day, no one has beat the record of Vince Lombardi. So much so that that trophy that they're going to be playing for in just a few weeks on February 12th, the name of that trophy is the Vince Lombardi Trophy because of the reputation he set. You see, he and his, 
his training staff knew that if we will be relentlessly devoted to the basics, they will serve us well. We don't know what challenges we're going to face or what the plays of the, the teams might be. But if we stay devoted to these basics, we will be prepared and we will advance beyond. And that's what worked out. For us as followers of Jesus Christ, it may do us well to sit back for just a moment and say, let's take a look at the basics of what we're called to as followers of Jesus Christ. And let us determine, are we relentlessly devoted to those because we do not know what we're going to encounter in this year? There may be trying times. There may be times of celebration. There may be times of joy. There may be times of mourning. But if we've committed ourselves to the basic of our faith, then we will be able to come through in a way that reflects Jesus Christ to a society that desperately needs him. So let's take a look at God's word. There is a passage that we are going to this morning that actually serves as the ancient training camp, the equivalent of what Vince Lombardi did with his players, of saying this is a football. We're going to start by turning to the book of Hebrews, and we're going to read verses 12, chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You know, these ancient words are tremendously relevant for us today. We're going to explore where, how he got to this challenge and what he might have been considering for these believers to be doing as they were advancing in their race, as they were moving forward in their faith. So before we drill into the intricacies of this verse, let's understand how did he get here with this. So we're going to take an overall look at the book of Hebrews now. Thankfully, in just a few weeks, or I guess next week, you're going to be starting a study in the book of Hebrews. So you'll be resident experts in all the details. So I won't go in depth there. Well, a couple of things that are good to realize is that the book of Hebrews was written by someone with a close relationship to the people receiving the letter. It was pastoral in nature. It was Warm, it was encouraging, but it also carried some blistering warnings for the people. No punches were pulled. This is what the expectation was for them. But it was out of a heart, a pastoral heart, for you can do this, you need to live in this way. It involves a lot of interesting rhetorics that aren't in different places in Scripture. It's the place, it's the book in Scripture that has the most intense and most frequent exhortations to the listeners. Like, so often in the book, and you'll find it with the phrase, let us, repeated so often in the book. There are implicit and explicit exhortations, so much so that the author in the very last chapter calls it, I, I trust that you will take my word of expert exhortation, this entire letter, he calls it a short letter, which is 13 chapters, that you will live out these, this word of exhortation, and it will make your faith stronger. There were twofold purpose in the book of Hebrews. One, they, the, the followers were facing false teachings, and they were beginning to accept some of these false teachings of their faith, so there were real theological issues. 
but they were also now starting to abandon their faith. Those that were once close and deeply committed were dangerously near the point of apostasy, of walking away from their faith. And this author does not want that to happen. He wants them to hold strong to their faith. It's interesting, um, one uh, commentator, theologian, has this to say as you read through the book of Hebrews, because so often the author, he's introducing very complex theological uh, issues, doctrinal issues, but also there are so many intents. You must now live this way. You have to live this way. This is, this is what is being expected of you. This uh, Dr. Stephen Um has this to say, one of the reasons that's important to keep in mind how often the author directly exhorted his audience in this book is because of the complex theological reflections. These reflections often obscure the purpose of the writing. See, the author didn't simply want to inform his audience of theological issues. He wanted to inform them doctrinally in order to persuade them to adopt different attitudes and actions. He wanted them to think well and think right so that their attitudes and actions would be different. This is what he meant when he called his book a word of exhortation. So we must keep his urgency in mind as we go into the book of Hebrews. So it's important for us to realize that this original writing, there was a real expectation. With this information I'm giving you, your life must be lived differently. And you must not abandon the faith. That's his expectation for them. And that's an expectation for us. Is that as we read these words, as we reflect on them, that they make a difference in our actions and in our attitudes that's evident to others. So that's the overall picture of the book of Hebrews. But there's a place where the author takes a turn and starts developing real momentum towards this challenge in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And that happens just a couple verses before, a couple chapters before, I'm sorry. In chapter 10, verses 23 and 24, in this section is an incredibly intense section of him saying, let us, let us, let us, let us, as you get into chapter 10. But in specifically, chapter 10, verses 23 and 24, he says this as a turning point. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. You see, he had built a number of chapters coming up to this is the hope we profess, that God provided Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. God provided him, and he has redeemed us. He's provided that, that eternal presence that we will have with the Father. God promised that in ancient times, and in our lifetime we saw the provision. That's the hope that we profess. We must hug it. We must hold it desperately and closely like a cherished loved one. We must hold to this hope. Don't abandon the hope. Even with these teachings, he was saying to the people of Hebrews, with these teachings, don't abandon this hope. Hold firmly to this hope. Then he says this, it is not just good enough for you to, okay, intrinsically I hold and I understand that hope. It gets to work itself out. Verse 24, he says, so that we might spur one another on towards love and good deeds. John Piper says this about that particular verse, what it means to spur one another on. The author's expectation would be that we would say things that direct people whose hope is wavering to help them hope in God. 
That's what it means to spur one another. And it's not just a platitude. It's not, oh, well, God would be faithful. But the expectation would be, out of your context of experiencing God's faithfulness, you can say something to someone else whose faith is wavering. You can say something to help them have faith in God, to trust God in their circumstances. That's his expectation. That that intrinsic knowledge that you have would so change you that you would be prompted to encourage those people around you as you see challenges coming. So there shifts the momentum in the book where he starts now, okay, personally and in community, here's how you live this out. And he goes through... They were facing some real challenges because some of them in these chapter, in these next few verses, they were going to prison. They were losing their property. They were being persecuted. So it wasn't light challenges they were facing. But he's saying, though even those things should not push you or draw you away from your faith on that. That's his expectation. And as he's going through and talking about these current challenges, all of a sudden he makes a jump in chapter 11. And you know Hebrews chapter 11 that great hall of faith, right? He goes from all these current issues that they're facing and this persecution they're facing, and it's just like all of a sudden he jumps back into the ancient times. Almost as though he's saying, okay, just, just a minute, I can see you're confused, so let me go back to some of these ancient stories we know about. And for them in this day, these were ancient stories, and for us they're ancient stories. And you start to look through Hebrews chapter 11, and if you're like me, you're like, oh, that looks a whole lot like the Sunday school curriculum that I went through as a little kid. I can remember the flannel graphs where they would pull up and stick these on the flannel graph thing. And I know for many of you, that's like, what in the world even is a flannel graph? I don't know. It was an amazing technology in the day. Nobody could really explain how that thing is sticking up on the board, but it's stuck there. And anyway, amazing you know, graphics they would pull out in these different characters. So you were always, what would be next? I went through that. This, this was the template. These stories were the template. And this author is getting through them, and he's saying, man, you know these. You know these stories. Because the, the, the receivers of this letter were Jewish. They, they knew the ancient traditions and the ancient stories. And he gets to the end of chapter 11. Like, we, we won't go through all the different people he references and everything, but he gives us some really important insight at the end of chapter 11. Uh, and let's go to chapter 11, verses 39 and 40, as he's continuing to build his momentum towards chapter 12. He says this, starting in 39. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them had received what, God, what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. He is saying, all these people that we know, that we celebrate, and that we revere their faith, they did not even receive, they did not even see God's provision, yet they trusted God's faithfulness for the eternal provision of the Messiah, but also in their immediate circumstances that they were living through. And you can go through the stories. God met each of these people on their individual circumstances, but also continued to affirm to them, I am sending a Messiah that will restore the relationship and bring, bring life back to you. The more powerful part of this is the ending of chapter, uh, verse 40, where he says God had something better so that together with us they would be made perfect. The author is making it very clear to these people, because you know these stories of great faith, because you understand this, you now have a place to step into that heritage of faith, to be part of that lineage. 
you are coming alongside them to live out a vivid testimony of God's faithfulness to the people you live with. See, it's one thing to, to us reflect on the life of Abraham and, and all the patriarchs and all those prophets and the way God was at work there. And it's yet another thing to say, yes, and also I know about my brother here that has gone through a trying circumstances and has seen God's faithfulness and is living a life of testimony. Or my sister and what she is having to endure yet she is not abandoning her faith. That makes it so tangible, so near. I mean, I even heard it this morning in the prayer as we were praying of, of people in this community that are living out their faith in a vibrant way and how that should be an encouragement to us in a way that completes the testimony of the ancients. All of that is building up to this chapter 12, verse 1, where he's going to Lay it on them. So he just drops this huge statement of, you know all about those ancient people in faith? You have a responsibility to step in to be part of that lineage of faith. He drops it on them, and then, chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, knowing all that, all that's in the background, you've, you, we've, we've gone over this, and you, you're, you're firmly aware of all these things. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and so the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run per, with perseverance the race marked out for us. Again, he goes back even to the example of sport. And saying, look, if you are, if you are really committed, if you are a, an elite athlete, you know that when you step into that arena you have to have trained and prepared in a focused way. Have you ever seen an Olympic event? Have you ever seen, uh, let's say, a sprinter come to the sprint line, and at the sprint line, all of a sudden, they pull out their phone, and they're, they're taking some selfies, and they're sending some texts, and they're, they're posting on their... You haven't seen that. That wouldn't be an elite athlete. That would be an distracted athlete. You might see that at, let's say, an elementary or a junior high track meet to say, well, this is exciting, I'm here. You wouldn't see it at that level. An elite athlete is quite focused. An elite athlete knows, okay, I have a very specific rhythm and I do these exact specific things at a certain time and I wear only the things that are specifically designed for me so that I can perform at my peak. That's an elite athlete. That's a focused athlete not distracted or entangled in, in other things that are on the periphery. There will be a time for the interviews and for all the accolades and things, but when they come to that starting line, they come as a focused athlete. That's what this call is in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, let us lay off the things that hinder us and so easily entangle us. Sometimes there are things that, okay, it's, it, it's, it's a hindrance to faith. Later in the book, in, in Hebrews chapter 13, the author calls people says, don't get distracted with strange teachings. Don't get distracted with things that are just periphery to the, to the faith or things that are actually a distraction towards living a life of faithfulness committed to God, understanding, and, and living in His faithfulness. Don't, don't let these strange things be a distraction to you. Or these sins, these things that you know are a distraction and limit your ability to live a life of faith. Don't find yourself engaging in those things. Distance yourself from those things. Well, that, sometimes that's hard, right? Sometimes there are things that just kind of crowd into life and all of a sudden you don't realize, oh my goodness, this is actually, 
has a pretty dominant place in life, and I'm, I'm spending more energy here. This author is saying, set that stuff aside. Don't let it get in the way. If it's interfering with your understanding of God's faithfulness, then it's a distraction, and it's a thing that's going to entangle you. And he says to run the race with perseverance. So perseverance is one of those words. Repeatedly in Scripture you find it. But it, it's a, we even understand the words, okay, this is going to be a prolonged effort. It's going to be a prolonged challenge. To persevere means, okay, well, something's not just casual. It's not easy. It's not light. It's something that I have to continually put effort into. I have to expend myself. That's what an athlete would do, an elite athlete, in their training camp or in their training regiments, they are disciplining themselves. They are putting effort into their training, their exercises, so that when the time comes, they will be strong in that area to perform. That's what the expectation of this author is. is that we're setting aside those things and we are committed. We're going to continue to put the effort in so that as the challenges to faith come, we are prepared. We are not surprised. We are prepared and ready to lean into those. He does this for them. So just as he had, in, in chapter 11, he had referenced all of these ancients that you guys already know the stories, you know the stories of the ancients, so remember them, you know, and now take your place. Here again, he gives them something to focus their attention on. He says in verse 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So in here, he's helping the people to understand, you know, I know how difficult this is going to be. I know this is a challenge, but you have a vivid example in Jesus Christ. You can look to Jesus, not just look to Jesus, but fix your eyes on him. As an elite athlete would fix their eyes on their goal for that competition, that championship, he's saying, fix your eyes on Christ. He's the ultimate example for us. So what can we turn to in scripture that might be something to say, oh, okay, Wow, you say fix your eyes on Jesus. That's, that's broad, that's huge. He said, he did so many things. He, wow, where do I even begin if I'm going to fix my eyes on Christ? Well, for us, thankfully, there is a passage in Scripture we can go to that really, really gives a laser focus. It's in the Gospel of John, chapter 17. Now, to be fair, when the book of Hebrews was written and circulated, the Gospel of John didn't exist. It came along 20 years later as a written document. Most likely, though, the, the oral tradition, the story, the accounts that we find in John would have been in circulation, but they wouldn't have had, oh, and turn, go back to the scroll of John. They wouldn't have had that in there. But to our benefit, we do. We have the recorded book of John. So let's flip over. If we are to fix our eyes on Christ, if that's what we're to do in this context of living out the faithfulness that God's demonstrated to us. Let's go to John chapter 17. And I'm going to read the first five verses of John chapter 17. And as I read that, it may help us to know that this is the longest recorded prayer of Christ in Scripture, this entirety of chapter 17. But this is coming in the Gospel of John just after that upper room discourse where Jesus is sitting with all his disciples. They've washed their feet. They've had the meal they, he has, he's given them lots of instruction. He said, here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to come. I'm going to be taken away. Here's what's going to happen repeatedly through there. And so then it says, beginning in 17, 
After Jesus said this, the whole upper room discourse was what was recorded. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. If we want to fix our eyes on Jesus, this is an ideal passage for us to go to. And it's pretty appropriate for this passage out of Hebrews when he says, fix your eyes on Jesus, because even in this passage, he references this very point where Christ went to the cross with intent, with on purpose. He went there. And so it's good for us to kind of let's look at what helped Christ navigate that time in his life. How did Christ go to the cross scorning its shame? You know, it it's interesting that the author of Hebrews uses the word, he scorned the shame, but in the book of John, Christ says, he opens up by saying, glorify your son. Now remember, Christ knew full well that the next thing on the schedule was the cross. He knew that's what's coming. He had already told the disciples he knew that was coming. And yet he opens his prayer by saying, glorify your son. Well, from a human perspective, that makes no sense. Because the cross was a great point of shame, right? No one, no one in that day would have thought, wow, that's a glorious place to be is on that cross of shame. That's, that's counterintuitive, to say the least. But yet that's the way Christ starts his prayer. What you don't find in the prayer of Christ is keep me from harm. Don't let this thing happen. Take me to a place of comfort. That's nowhere in there. Stephen Cole, uh, um, an author and a pastor, writes saying that, that this prayer of Christ for himself is a vivid display of his burning passion for the glory of God at any cost. He would ensure that the glory of God was there. And he, even though he was unclear about what the next steps might be, he was certain in God's faithfulness. You see, the interesting part is that Christ had a much different perspective, not just a human perspective of what the cross was. Christ understood, number one, God, you have been faithful, you had promised, and you will deliver. You will deliver on your promise for a Messiah. And this is the pivot point, the pivot point of all creation, and where grace is now released through this sacrifice, and I am willing to accept the price of being the sacrifice. Christ understood that this is a supernatural perspective. There is something cosmic going on, and even the angels are longing to look in and understand how in the world does this work out that God the Son is going to be separated from God the Father and creation is going to be redeemed. How will this work out? But Christ knew God was faithful. Christ knew that God would meet that, would fulfill that promise, and that he would ultimately be restored to the glory beside the Father. That's what he prayed for in John 17. 
He knew that going through this, even as unpleasant as it was going to be, would ultimately work out in him being restored to the presence of the Father. That's what even the, the author of Hebrews says. He scorned its shame, knowing that he would be sitting down at the right hand of God the Father. But at the same time, he fully accepted the promise, or it, the, the price, to pay the price so that God would be glorified through this. This was the foundational perspective of Jesus that let him go through all that. And this is what the author calls us to. He calls us to fix our eyes on Jesus who went through that and was restored to the right hand of God the Father, who went through that and glorified God the Father in every step of the way. Now, as we go back to Hebrews chapter 12, it's important to note that the author understood this is a daunting task I'm asking you to do, to run this race with your eyes fixed on Christ. This is not natural. It, he vividly says it in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. He says, Consider him who endured such opposition from simple men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It is a very natural response that we would lose heart. He says it right here. His encouragement is that if we focus our eyes on Christ and if we look at how he lived out his life, my hope for you is that it will help you to not lose heart when you see what Christ did, that he did it for you, but also that he lived through with an undying passion to see God glorified, trusting God's faithfulness. He knew that God would be faithful in all circumstances. Therefore, he wanted God to be glorified in all circumstances. The author of Hebrews comes back to that idea and says, even a little bit later in chapter 12, Verses 12 and 13, he says this. He says, Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. He acknowledges that as you're living out this faith, it would be quite likely, quite possible, that your hands would be weak and your knees would be feeble. I think about that for my life, and I think, yes, absolutely. I know of times, it's vivid to me, times where my hands were weak, my knees were feeble. I did not live up. I did not make the most of that opportunity for God to be glorified. I questioned his faithfulness. And it may happen again, but the author does not condemn them for going through those experiences. It's almost as though he acknowledges this is a very real part of the experience, that your hands may be weak at times and your knees may be feeble at times. But do not give up. Do not let go of that faithfulness that God has promised that he will have in your life. Don't let go of that hope. He's been faithful on an eternal perspective. He will also be faithful in your immediate circumstances as you work through life. He is faithful in both, and he will weave those together. This author desperately does not want his people to lose heart or to lose sight of God's faithfulness. So how do we get there? What do we do to say, okay, I, I understand the basic of saying, regardless of my circumstances I encounter in these next years, exciting or concerning, 
or devastating, regardless of those circumstances, God's faithful and he's at work. And how do I hold strong to it? Well, there's a couple things that we can lean to in this passage. Going back into chapter 10, you remember how he said, you need to spur one another on? A great advantage that we have is that the reality of that one another, it is a reciprocal expectation. There may be times in this community where you are facing challenges, where you are the one that is experiencing, wow, here is, here's a real questioning or a, a trying time in my faith. You need to be able to reach out to someone else and just to say, I need your encouragement. My, my faith is, is waning. It is wavering right now. I need some encouragement. Can you encourage me? Or, or you look at someone and say, I know you've gone through something, and I just, man, I need your encouragement that God's at work in my circumstance. There may be times where you are the individual that needs to offer the encouragement. That's the whole reciprocal nature of it. There's no one that's designated as, okay, you're always the encouragement giver. That's you. That's, that's all you ever do. And others, that all you ever do is receive encouragement. No, we got it wrong. It's a one another. It goes back and forth. And that may be you different times, one way or the other. So we have community. It's what his expectation was for the book of Hebrews. It's what the expectation is for us right here. We have community that we can live in. Another powerful resource that we have as we strive to do this is if you go back to the Gospel of John. Remember just prior to that, and even in his prayer, Jesus talks often about the Holy Spirit. You cannot read John chapter 13 to 17 without it just being overwhelming. Okay, we get it. The Holy Spirit's coming. The Holy Spirit's going to empower us and remind us. Okay, that's what Christ was hoping for and praying for for us. We have the work of the Holy Spirit that at times will prompt us to say, um, you, you need to reach out to someone or you need to be reached out to. Make yourself available. This is what we're called to as individuals living in the community of Christ. Here's another thing that's interesting to miss. And I said it briefly as we went to John chapter 17. I said, we're going back and we're going to look at the prayer of Jesus. It was a prayer in which Jesus was praying to the Father for himself. We have the unbelievable privilege of prayer. And because of his sacrifice, we can at any time, in any circumstances, go to the Lord in prayer. Jesus did it as he was approaching this trying circumstance of going to the cross. And then he turns and he prays for us, he prays for the disciples. This is a, power, a, a powerful resource that we have as we look to how will we live out this life of faith. If I want to stay devoted and living out for my brothers and sisters to see God's faithfulness in me and my circumstances, we have the benefit of prayer, the work of the Holy Spirit, and the benefit of living in community where we can intentionally be reaching out to one another, whether it's a time of I need encouragement or a time of I can offer encouragement. So I trust that as we go into this 2023, and we're looking forward in anticipation or in trepidation as we're looking forward to the year, we might find ourselves being drawn back frequently to the basics of the faith, knowing that God is faithful. He has provided his eternal fulfillment in Jesus Christ, and he is at work in my circumstances for in some very specific way that he might be glorified 
and I can share that with the people that I live out my faith with. That's my hope for you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, for the relevance that it has for us today, even as ancient as these words are. Lord, that they speak into our reality here today. Help us to be followers of Jesus Christ that encourage one another that are living our lives in a way that trusts God's faithfulness regardless of our circumstances and that we can share the hope that we have with one another to be a genuine encouragement as we encounter challenges and as we encounter things that we celebrate. Lord, help us to lift one another up that we might come out the other side having been a faithful testimony added to that of the saints of old. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.